Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Chamba, welcoming you to the September 6th, 2016 post-Labor Day edition of Ask a Leader. Today, this show's brimming over the top with three guest segments. Carl Mars and Roger Gloss of Orange County for Climate Action invite you listeners to the September 10th, September 15th forums in Irvine, promoting a local action template already operating in San Diego. Then Dr. Terry Welsh, Banding Ranch Conservancy President, will return to signal what's ahead on tomorrow. That's tomorrow if you're listening live with the California Coastal Commission's agenda at its Newport Beach meeting, the Banding Ranch proposal. Finally, we'll hear from UCI's Jackie Au about his leading age brain plasticity research toward improving working memory. All that for you. Be right back after a very short break. Uh, so much for that township jingle. Welcome back to my show. First guests are Roger Gloss and Carl Morris. They are both members of the Orange County for Climate Change, for climate action. <laughs> this is a grassroots volunteer group whose mission is to increase public awareness of the effects of climate change and dial up action at the local level to mitigate those effects. Born in Buffalo, Rogers lived in Orange County since 1970. He earned his bachelor's of science degree in physics from UCLA. Retired from a 45-year career in computer programming and information technology. He has worked in aerospace, energy engineering, and the public sector. In the mid-80s, he spent 15 months on assignment in the Netherlands. Feels this time in Europe has done much to broaden and enrich in his worldview, so he's written, and that this is available on his uh, blogging website, Third Wind, it's a pre-apocalyptic novel about climate change. You're all welcome to step up and find your copy through rogergloss.com. And he credits his research during the writing of this with awakening his passion for attacking the global climate crisis on all fronts. We'll, we'll get to that. He blogs on rogergloss.com. And Carl Mars is returning. We've introduced him in full before. He's also an affiliate of the Orange County for Climate Action. He graduated from the University of Missouri in chemical engineering. Throughout and after his engineering career at Floor Daniel, Carl remains in the thick of movement and partisan politics, contributing to the Orange County State Democratic Party and the local and regional United Nations Association. He's been on here for that and among other many things. Carl once ran in the state assembly race in what was then the uh, 70th district. So here to present a special forum in which we're all welcome to participate are veteran professionals and activists, Roger Gloss and Carl Maritz, who joined me in studio. Welcome back to the show, Carl. Welcome, Roger. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Claudia. Thank it, you. So first, let us in on what the charter is for the Orange County for Climate Action. Roger? Well, we formed uh, about two years ago. We're a grassroots volunteer group, and uh, we're advocating to raise awareness uh, within Orange County of the effects of climate change. Um, Orange County is already affected by climate change, even though a lot of people may not realize it. Uh, we have a five-year drought. We have wildfires all around California and the Southwest, so we are affected. We're raising awareness, and then recently we've embarked on this project to work with cities within Orange County to um, reduce their greenhouse gases and help mitigate the effects of climate change that are already upon us. Okay. Yeah. With the, well, I, I'm not, the sea level rise, and we've got the, the hydrologists are talking about that. It's, it's, it's showing up there in the, the lower-lying coastal deluxe properties. I mean, the climate change is it's nibbling away. I, I don't hang around Balboa Island too much, but I believe Balboa I Island mean, will be affected. Those $13 million <laughs> price tags don't seem to be registering the, uh, no, but the uh, <laughs> actuarial realities. No, but if I was someone buying a property in Balboa at this point, especially one very close to the beach, I'd be a little leery about taking on a 30-year mortgage. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so, 
Well, then let's uh, tell us both of you about the San Diego so-called landmark climate action plan adopted just, it was less than a year ago, tackling California's mandates for greenhouse reduction uh, provisions that San Diego's climate change uh, action plan has, providing a roadmap and a template that can be adopted in other municipalities. What's in there? This is Roger again. Yes, thank you. Well, late last year, December 2015, uh, immediately following the Paris climate talks, San Diego City Council adopted a, a bold climate action plan that will cut their carbon emissions in half by the year 2035 and bring 100% renewable electricity to the city by that same year. Um, this is a binding commitment because it was passed by the City Council, so the key will be in the implementation. But this plan uh, makes San Diego the largest city in the United States with a commitment of this magnitude. The largest. The largest in the United States at oh. this time. Okay. Uh, with a binding commitment. Okay. And that's critical because there are so many advisory ones that are it's sort of in spirit. But a binding, this makes it law, this gets action. That's correct. Okay. And there, Santa Ana has adopted some kind of an action plan. And so that's the second largest city in Orange County. And so they have sort of larger uh, or large shares of that template incorporated into theirs. And is theirs binding? Theirs is also binding. It was adopted by the city council. Strangely, we met with the staff in Santa Ana that worked on that plan. And, you know, their their plan was going on simultaneously with San Diego. But what's so it strange? Was, it was like working in silos because oh, neither was necessarily aware of what the other was doing. Well, you know, let's open a little bit what that is all about, that there is such an effort to establish legitimacy with a skeptical public and with getting I mean th there's very over committed people that are involved in climate change they've been involved in so many other aspects of public policy and all that it's maybe a it's a, such a engrossing activity it's hard to know that laterally the same thing is happening other places do you think that's sort of what's that creates those kind of siloed situations absolutely yeah and um you it's know, not going away. To, to California's credit, the state level is, is doing quite a bit right now. Just uh, uh, two weeks ago, the state passed Senate Bill 32, which kind of updates the, uh, the commitment that was made under the Schwarzenegger administration. And SB 32 is committing the state to 40% greenhouse gas reduction from 1990 levels by the year 2030. So, you know, the state is providing the guidance uh, for cities to, to take action to support the state goals. Okay. Okay. Carl, anything to add to these things? Any? Uh, not really. I think Roger's covering it pretty well. Um, Roger, you want to tell them about the... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry Carl's about gonna, that. My co-host, Carl. All right, is. yeah. No. Uh, I just want to ask Roger. You can ask, or you can, Claudia, ask Roger about the meeting that he had with Nicole Capriz okay. on May 10th that started all this and Nicole, for our Orange County action. She is the attorney who is going to be the featured guest at the Bringing Clean Energy to Orange County. So, But talking about, uh, sh she's got 20 years under her belt, climate change, policy, advocacy, lawmaking. Yes, Nicole Capretz was um, one of the key players and the primary author of San Diego's Climate Action Plan. She worked for the city at the time that they started working on the plan, and she's, she's since left the city but is very actively involved. She's an environmental attorney with 20 years of experience as an energy and climate advisor for local governments and the nonprofit sector. As I said, she was the primary author of San Diego's plan, yes. which was adopted in December, and she is currently executive director of Climate Action Campaign, and she's serving on San Diego's Climate Action Plan Implementation Working Group, because as I said, the plan is one thing, but the implementation is right. the key. Well, I hope that she's got a, a farm team chasing around with her, so she's nurturing some public what we call them, public, public law, not public law, but uh, it'll come to me, that's sort of training them on the, on what her practice is all about. So there's a, a professional class that's ready to keep carrying the torch. Yes. Uh huh. And now uh, we had the, the good fortune to meet with her last spring. And um, she's very interested. She's very committed to what she's doing, super energetic. And of course, she, we, 
you know, as a believer in the crisis, she wants to carry it beyond San Diego. Right. So she's been very helpful in working with us to, to kind of bring the message to Orange County and work with Orange County cities to do something similar. And as we were preparing for this, Roger, you were talking about, yes, it's necessary that the local niveau of activism is, is mobilizing, but talk to what's sufficient, what needs to happen in terms of there's so many levels of, of policy making that all have to happen. Yes, I, I believe that, um, that this crisis needs to be tackled at all levels. And uh, the most difficult, from my perspective, this is just my personal opinion, oh, well, seems to be Tell seems me. to be Washington. <laughs> but there that's is the a DC there, as in DC, yes. But there is a uh, a national group called Citizens Climate Lobby that is that is working very hard to try to get legislation in Washington to pass a carbon fee and dividend. And they circle back here. I give them. A chances to come by every once every couple of months yes so. they're, they're a good group and they they're have a lot very of, focused very very and their media campaign is very good so i don't know if there's a media campaign that also that you're recruiting always activists to join you yes um we're very small and we're only two years old but you know our mission uh in contrast to citizens climate lobby is to try to work within Orange County. Okay. Uh, that That's more right-sized for us. Let's talk about, then, this forum coming up. It'll be, if you're listening live, folks, it's Thursday or it's Saturday the 10th, and then September 15th, and that's a week from this Thursday, about that forum that will be held in two separate Irvine locations. So help help yourselves, guys. Okay, yes, we have two two identical events. Um, the event this They're identical. They're if you yes. can't make one, better make the other. They'll be identical in content. No, you can you can come to either or both. Okay. Uh, but they will be the same. But the uh, event coming up this Saturday from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. is at Irvine United Congregational Church on Alton Parkway in Irvine. Uh, admission is free, and we're hoping to attract a, a lot of members of the public to that event. The event on Thursday, September 15th, is also from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. That will be at the Irvine Civic Center in the Irvine City Council Chambers. And uh, we're hoping to attract city council members, city council candidates, and city staff who will be doing these kinds of things with climate action plans to that event. A candidate told me over the weekend that Irvine is poised to adopt a climate action plan. Is it, can you feel it from here? Uh, that's correct. I've, I've been in touch with uh, some members of city staff, and the city of Irvine is, um, is kind of early on in the process of doing a comprehensive update of their general plan, which is their economic development and so on. And because of all the state mandates and goals for climate mitigation as part of that plan they will be doing a climate action plan to say this is our development plan this is how we are going to control the greenhouse gas impact of that there's you know, a meeting uh, tomorrow night at city hall where citizens actually can make input into this plan i think it's at 7 30 wednesday night 7 p.m 7 p.m at the Irvine City Hall. And what's the form? Is it? It's not a. It's not a commission or council meeting. It's no, the public special, is invited. But it's a special meeting. It's a special meeting. Con convened specific, by. Convened by, I guess, the uh, planning commission or the oh, planning council. Okay. Specifically to get public input into what Irvine's uh, new plan will be in order to address climate issues. So, as we're talking about this, it makes me think, the Chamber of Commerce, that this would seem to me to be the forward-thinking kind of card to flash your municipality out to the rest of the world to demonstrate what a forward-thinking city you are, progressive in, a, the, in an all-encompassing kind of progressive way that's, uh, all, that captures all kind of political persuasions, that this is a way to promote what your city's about by you stepping up with the climate action plan. I mean, I, I would think this may eventually become a status symbol to promote your civic profile. Yes, and, uh, you know, I believe San Diego has got national recognition for what they've done. It, I mean, everybody kind of knows where San Diego is, but they're, they're uh, 
plan really put San Diego on the map. And, um, you know, we're, we're hoping that Irvine as the one of the newer cities and the, sec- the third largest city in Orange County will step into that kind of model role also within Orange County. So Irvine, I, yeah, Irvine yes. has a reputation of being a planned city. Uh, that was one of the early attractions to bring people here. And uh, it's, it's pretty well kept to that. We've, we've developed a master plan over the years, and we've kept to it. At this point, it looks like this is a proper time really to start looking at going green in Irvine, not only with, uh, with issues concerning power, like ours, but we can also do some other things. Consolidating. And I th- that's right. And that actually could be public input uh, if someone is interested. Okay. All right. Well, we've got a website for people to follow you and to follow the upcoming events, occlimateaction.org. Gets everybody to what you're doing. You've posted the bringing clean energy to Orange County Forum on your website. That's the newest item. People can see what you have been doing and I don't know if you posted if there's going to be something posted coming up after a form special form after this one. Uh, nothing concrete Com- yet. Ruby, we're we're going to probably be doing a lot state. based yeah, on how this goes. This yeah. is okay. the beginning. This okay. is the beginning of a long process. Okay. We hope. And, and, and we I expect. W- I would request that you know we actually you know I mentioned the Saturday event is public. The Thursday event is city and so on. But you know public can go to either one. Right. And if you're interested in attending, I would. Uh, encourage you to go to occlimateaction.org and RSVP so that we have an idea of, of who's coming. Okay. And the, as I mentioned, folks can follow also Roger on his blogging at rogergloss.com, rogergloss.com for, for literature and for commentary and that kind of a thing. So, well, we've got lots of people to talk to today, and I don't know if there's anything you'd like to uh, add to the discussion here. Before we conclude, I don't think so. I I would just uh, encourage everybody to attend one of these events and learn more about uh, what's going on with with climate in Orange County. So you you're giving it's a different schedule. One is a weekend, some weekend hours, and then some. some it'll be tough for everybody to make it during the weekday uh, Thursday from eleven to one next week. But uh, it's you've made it possible for people to to capture one of those. So. Well, I always applaud the grassroots actions, and I know Carl's been doing so many. He's worn so many hats. He needs a, a hat rack that fills a whole, <laughs> whole living room. So I and Roger, Roger, I don't know as well. So I, I'm, I'm imagining there's quite a few hats there too. So thank you both of you for for being on the show and bringing this important activity and all these opportunities to our attention. Thank, thank you, Claudia. Claudia. Okay, thank you. We'll be right back. That first, that was Carl Morris and Roger Gloss talking about the Orange County Climate Action. And we're going to uh, be back with Terry Welsh. He's the Banding Ranch Conservancy president in just a few minutes. Thanks, everybody, for staying tuned. Welcome back to the show. My next guest is Dr. Terry Welsh. Of He's president of the Banning Ranch Conservancy, whose day job is pathologist at the Anaheim Regional Medical Center. This community physician and coastal open space activist wears, he's, he's wearing a lot of hats too, folks, just like what my previous guests have been doing. After working with the Bolsa Chica effort, Dr. Terry Welsh founded the Sierra Club Banning Ranch Park and Preserve Task Force and has served as its chairperson since 1999. He served as president of the Banning Ranch Conservancy since creating it uh, in 2008. We're fortunate to have him spare time again in his busy life to bring us his long view of what is at stake with the pending Banning Ranch development proposal before the Coastal Commission. He comes to us. Are you coming to us today from Anaheim? Yes. Okay. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Terry Welsh. A half year later with the California Coastal Commission meeting in our backyard about our backyard. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Claudia. Well, first, before we get into the actual 
banning ranch proposal before the California Coastal Commission. Please give us your appraisal of the California legislative outcomes last week. There were there was concerning the rules regarding ex parte communications, phone calls, face to face meetings, emails, and other written material with uh, that's with uh, agents of of projects and the California Coastal Commissioners. Or there's the bill addressing the loophole that exempts lobbyists to register with the state and disclose any clients who have business pending before the commission. So what was your impression last week? What do you have to say? Well, you know, the coastal commissioners will meet with both the applicant and the environmentalist, and they're called ex parte meetings. Uh, But the problem is is that not everybody can have ex parte meetings on the same level as the applicant. They have a lot of money. They can fly around. They they, they seem to just kind of outdo the environmentalists on these things. And it's an inherent inequality. So there's been some legislation that's tried to address that, and um, unfortunately it failed. Um, it, the fight will continue, though. And, right. you know, there, there's a mixed feeling in the environmental community. Uh, a lot of environmentalists see a benefit from actually being able to sit down with a commissioner and, and discuss the issue. And, in fact, I think some of the commissioners greatly benefit from, from hearing from the environmentalists. So it... it, it the key is to find a way that really levels the playing field and that the applicant doesn't uh, have an advantage and count cannot outgun the environmental community. So, so the struggle will be to try to level the playing field. And I know that there's a lot of people in Sacramento that this is important to them. So I suspect this effort will continue. It failed this year, but the fight is not over. The playing field didn't look that level with the outcome in the legislative session. But- the ones the agents doing bidding for the business projects that they they uh, prevailed and so there's that's kind of a, a marker of the unlevel playing field right well yeah yeah um, <laughs> but but we're gonna keep at it right so and then there was the uh, the lobbyist loophole anything you want to say about that that failed too, to to uh, for disclosure that got totally muddled in a sort of a freedom of speech issue whether but it was really a, a transparency issue but any comments? Right. It, it, these things are never straightforward, um, but, but uh, trust me, we will all benefit by leveling the play, playing field, and, and we're going to keep working at it. So we'll be back next year. And and I can say I understand the, the reason for ex parte communications. If everybody gets to do it to the same extent, that it would allow commissioners a chance to sit, sort of have a back and forth without the bright bright public lights and dis, you know, uh, that might sort of distort one point. I mean, they can speak freely about it. I mean, we want transparency, but it, I'm thinking that sometimes there's a discussion that doesn't have work that can be very productive without the the full public view sure. of it all. And so, I mean, so and that all parties could uh, benefit from. So, well, let's right. let's go in to now what you think of the California Coastal Commission staff's scaled down proposal for the Banning Ranch Development's footprint. It's now uh, from 62 down to 55 acres. What do you think of their proposal? Well, yes. Yeah, so the big news was when the Coastal Commission staff was released, staff report was released about a week ago, uh, the staff is now recommending that more area be protected for a bird called the burrowing owl. Right. And these burrowing owls are extremely rare. Uh, they're, they're listed as a species of special concern in the state of California. There used to be a breeding population of them along the Southern California coast. I think that they were fairly numerous at one point. But right now there are no more breeding burrowing owls along the Southern California. There's no breeding population, no year-round breeding population along the coast. There are a few areas where just a few burrowing owls will fly in for the winter. And we're talking about five to ten will fly in for the winter in Orange County, and they'll spend the winter, and then they'll fly back up north. And one of those few areas is Banning Ranch. So over the years, they've documented anywhere from one to three burrowing owls that have come and spent, spend the winter on Banning Ranch, fly back at the end of winter. And if you want to keep Banning Ranch as an area where these birds will winter and maybe even hopefully reestablish a breeding population, you need to keep the areas not just where they they live in their burrows, but also where they hunt and they forage. So what the Coastal Commission staff has now done is they've recognized the foraging area for these burrowing owls as important, and they've declared it to be ESHA, which is Environmentally Sensitive Habitat Area, and it it is off-limits to development. Now, 
the commissioners are not obligated to uphold their staff's recommendations. So that is why we are really encouraging people to attend the Coastal Commission hearing Wednesday, tomorrow. Tomorrow. September 7th. It's the last on the agenda item, but we can't estimate what time it is, but it's the last item. So it could be, it's sometime after lunch likely, no? Yes, it will probably come up before lunch, but the item is going to take a long time. There's going to be a lot of testimony. Um, And so we expect the actual vote, if it does occur, will not happen until later on in the day. Um, However, if you do want to speak on the issue, you have to get there before the item comes up to to fill out a speaker slip. So a lot of us hardcore people are going to be there long before the hearing starts at 9, and we're going to stay there throughout the entire length. Uh, we're encouraging people to get there for just spend the whole day there, but if they can't, the most important thing is to be there towards the end when the commissioners vote. So the staff recommendation scaled down what they provided after the February meeting of this year. Is that, isn't that what the, I'm looking at the board here and seeing all these pins moving around? But that's that sort of stepped up the the performance standard, did it not, for the development order? Right. Well, the, the staff's recommendations, you know, this was originally brought to the Coastal Commission in October of 2015. Right. And the staff report at that time, they were actually recommending even a smaller development, only about, um, I think it was about 11 acres. Then the item came back in May, and at that point the staff had kind of backed off and was allowing a larger development of 55 acres. But now for September, the staff, back what down. they did not do earlier was account for this foraging habitat for the burrowing owl. So taking that in, into consideration, now the footprint, this is what the staff says the developer can build on, is 20 acres. Okay. Um, now rem- keep in mind, though, that the applicant is still promoting their proposed project, right. which is much, much larger. It has a development footprint of about 80 acres, and that's when you include the fuel modification zone. So it's, it's a much, much larger project that would be about... 890 homes, and involve grading about 2.8 million cubic yards of dirt, an enormous, colossal project. So you've talked about the habitat, the viability for the burrowing owl, and there has been discussion about whether the landlord of the burrowing owls, whether they have kept their end of the deal up in terms of managing the the current state of that. Do you want to comment on what might have been going on behind the scenes with the habitat's viability? Well, you know, it is an oil field, and they do have permission to run their oil field out there. So it's, and, you know, and then that's an industrial operation, but it's not an all-encompassing uh, industrial operation. In other words, it, habitat and wildlife can coexist with the oil operation if done, you know, done properly. Now, the Coastal Commission did take action against the owners uh, last year because they were doing this excessive mowing and clearing of vegetation that went far beyond what was necessary for either fire safety or for routine oil field maintenance. And, and that has been resolved. That was a result of the Coastal Commission hearing in March. And since then, um, the owners have, have really curtailed their mowing and clearing of vegetation. They still mow uh, like a 100-foot buffer around the periphery of the property, but but that mesa top, where once it was almost extensively mowed, it's now starting to grow back. So in that sense, things are taking a step in the right direction. So you've given us a chance for people to prepare when to show up. Anything else that they can prepare to bring with them? I mean, they can practice their talk in the mirror. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to speak, you'll probably be given two minutes to speak. So. Ten. Oh, that's more no, no. I'm sorry. Two. I'm sorry. If I said ten, I meant two minutes. Two minutes. And um, so I can tell you, anyone who's ever been required to give a two-minute speech, you need to practice it ahead of time. Yeah. So you can get it through in two minutes. We want as many people as we can to come to the hearing. This is a really important thing. And Banning Ranch is the largest parcel of unprotected coastal open space remaining in Orange County. Its habitat is very, very special and unique, and it's important that the Coastal Commission do the right thing tomorrow, and if enough people show up, that really does help. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Dr. Terry Welsh, president of the Banning Ranch Conservancy, just one day ahead of the California Coastal Commission's latest 
That's the latest. There have been several considerations of the Newport banning ranch development. And it's so important that the Los Angeles Times led above the fold with this particular development project. It's been covered in some of the, you've seen your supplements, folks, in your Times pilot sections as well. But it brought up a point about the Newport banning ranch land trust. Do you want to talk about the function that we, we, we did when you were here on February, we talked a little bit about that, but why don't you open up a little bit more of a commentary on what the, the land trust would or wouldn't necessarily bring to the resource management goals? Right. Well, the Newport Banning Land Trust is a group that, it, although the name suggests that it's envir- an environmental group, it, it is, in fact, a developer group. This is a group that was uh, created by and funded by the developer, and its board of directors is largely controlled by the development team. Um, so having said that, though, they do do environmental things. Um, they have brought school children out on the site for tours. They've collected native, you know, seeds from native plants. They do do environmental things, but, but people should really be clear that this is a developer's group, um, not an environmental group. So, um, you know, it... it our our one complaint is that people might think that they're an environmental group, and we've always wished that they would disclose what they are. Um, but I, I think uh, most people are, are start to realize that. Okay. Okay. Well, this meeting, we didn't mention, it's going to be held at the Newport Beach City Council Chambers, and I think there should be ample parking around there. That's that brand-new wavy structure that the, the city hall that Newport Beach built. 100 Civic Center Drive. You want to put that on your GPS, folks. You can't find your way around uh, Avocado and <laughs> MacArthur. It's pretty easy to find. And the agenda is posted online at coastal.ca.gov. So you can check that out. So you've got your two-minute uh, speech down. I know, do, you, do people, can they uh, get, defer to you give, you, give up some of their extra time, or how does that work? What are you going to do tomorrow? Yeah, absolutely. If people don't want to speak themselves, they can always sign up for a speaking slot and then cede the time to somebody <laughs> else. So there, there's, there's rules about uh, the public can talk tomorrow, and you are allowed to cede time to another speaker so one person can actually gather up, I think, 10 minutes of time if they have something really important to say. So we will have tables there and help people uh, who want to see their time make sure that it goes to the right person. Okay. So when you show up tomorrow, and I would encourage everybody to show up, this is going to be one of those events that you do not want to miss. It, it is local history in the making, and there's going to be a lot of people there, a lot of environmental and community groups there. Uh, the media will be there. It will get a lot of public attention. Come, be prepared to spend a long time. It's going to be a long day. You might consider bringing like a foldable lawn chair or something just because I suspect that the actual council chambers itself might fill up, but I want everybody to come anyway. They do have an overflow room. Bring a food, bring snacks. We'll have some food there for people. It, it will be an event and something that you will want to participate in. And you bring up an interesting point, and I've observed how the Coastal Commission, it's a very interesting process to see where a proposal before them, it can sort of mutate into some other kind of, uh, with with conditions and stipulations, it can mutate into something entirely different. But there, you can never tell until the vote occurs what's going to actually be the outcome until the very, very, very end. There's so many things that happen with all of the kind of pet projects and all that each of the commissioners brings to the process in the forum. Exactly. You know, what the, what will happen tomorrow is, you know, there'll be the applicants project, this very, very large 890-home project. And all their graphics and easels. <laughs> right. But what the staff will do is they will recommend approval, but with a long list of conditions. And these conditions will you know, substantially shrink the project down to about 20 acres. So the commissioners, uh, they can pass motions to remove conditions from the recommendation for approval. Um, anything can happen up there. They, they could, in theory, vote to approve the applicant's entire project without any conditions. So it really is important for people to show up and, and let these commissioners know 
how important Banning Ranch is to you. One will be recusing himself because he has not, uh, he did not properly disclose his ex parte communication by the deadline. Another one is not, doesn't know until it will announce tomorrow at the beginning of the project's uh, being taken up on the agenda. So there were down to maybe 10 commissioners. Does that make things more interesting than you've ever seen it before? Well, it, there's never a dull moment with the California Coastal Commission. So, yes, I know that the, the chair, uh, Steve Kinsey, he recused himself a, a while back. And I know there's another commissioner, it was in the paper today, uh, might recuse himself. Right. So, yes, we could be down to 10 commissioners. Okay. Um, we'll find out. Well, Dr. Terry Welsh has given us ample opportunity to prepare for tomorrow's California Coastal Commission meeting on the Newport Banning Ranch development. Dr. Terry Welsh, thank you so much for for being on the show and bringing that to us. I'm hoping I'm hoping I can uh, make it there myself. I think this is going to be really quite amazing. Thanks for uh, all the due diligence. You're putting bodies together, again, when you're not saving uh, the coastline. So it comes at a huge sacrifice, time you don't have. So uh, thanks for doing all that. Thank you. And thanks for having me on the radio. Thank you, Terry Welsh. Good luck tomorrow. Thanks. Okay. We'll be right back with Jackie Ow, who's going to talk about neuroplasticity and working memory. Stay tuned. Sweet honey in the rock, way down deep. Welcome back to my show, Ask a Leader. My next guest and the last one is UCI and National Science uh, Foundation fellow Jackie Au. Jackie Au is a graduate research fellow in cognitive sciences, a PhD program at UC Irvine, and he earned his bachelor's of arts in science, double degrees in psychology and neurobiology from UC Davis, where he was involved in research on neurodevelopmental disorders and recently completed, congratulations, his master's degree at UCI is on the way into his terminal degree, the PhD. Currently, his work concerns the nature and enhancement of neuroplasticity, including the use of, this is a mouthful, but we will we will let him unpackage it all, transcranial direct current stimulation. I'm, I don't think I'm ever going to bring TDSCS <laughs> and computerized working memory training. His work's been published in several highly recognized journals and has been featured in such media outlets as Huffington Post and Nature Outlooks. Jackie Au joins me in studio today on, on our media outlet. So welcome to the show, Jackie Au. Thank you very much, Claudia. I'm very happy to be here today. Well, no small amount of neuroplasticity would help me get all this done this morning. I'm, I think <laughs> I might have needed a few, some of those, uh, some zaps here. Although uh, we did have re UCI researcher Susan Yaki on last spring to talk about working memory. Maybe you could briefly explain what that is for our listeners. Sure. Well, um, simply put, working memory refers to your ability to juggle information in your head and use it in your thinking. So to give a very relatable example, I'm using working memory right now, um, and so are you, Claudia, just simply... Hardly. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> Very much so. But in, in our daily lives, anytime we're having a conversation with somebody, we have to simultaneously process what that person is saying to us while at the same time trying to formulate our own thoughts and craft our next sentence. And critically, working memory is a limited capacity system. So unfortunately, that means that uh, most of us are very good at thinking about what we have to say, but not so good at listening to what the other person is trying to say. And that's just because we can only hold so much information in our heads at one time. But uh, having stronger working memory abilities helps with things like that and many other things in our daily lives. And all this research that all of you have been doing is to put in front of everybody that neuroplasticity doesn't stop at age three. It's an ongoing to, to, our, to our last days kind of function. Right, absolutely. It occurs throughout our entire lives. It's strongest uh, in the beginning of our lives, but it's something we can always tap into. Okay, and we're, we're, we're going to look at it in all different ways. So then let's have you explain what the transcranial direct current stimulation procedure is and how it works and the spheres of the brain that you're activating. Sure. So 
You're right, Claudia. That that is a mouthful. I'm just going to refer to it as TDCS uh, okay, from now on. So if you folks. hear that strange acronym, that's that's what I'm referring to. And uh, basically, it's a form of electrical brain stimulation. And in fact, it's uh, really a modern day iteration of uh, something that's been uh, of a rather ancient technique. Believe it or not. Wow. The uh, ancient Romans and other civilizations used to wrap electric eels around their heads and literally shock their brains with electricity. Stop. And- I, now that's not in your abstract. Wow. Uh, no, no. That is so cool. Well. They knew. And yeah. then we stopped doing it for thousands of years. Well, the thing is, we, we do it much more safely now because, okay. uh, you yeah. know, that, that, that was, I'm not advocating. I'm, sorry, one eel <laughs> doesn't fit all is what you're saying. Right, right. I, I do not advocate that approach. Um, we, we have a much safer way of introducing the uh, electric current into our brains these days. Uh, so TDCS is a way, uh, a non-invasive way of weak electrical brain stimulation where we simply place electrodes on the scalp. It's a low current, about 2 milliamps, between uh, 0.5 to 2 actually, depending on the study. And it's thought that uh, introducing this current into the brain will increase the brain activity and increase synaptic plasticity. Uh, so that it kind of makes you more receptive to whatever is going on in your environment at that time. Well, what was your next? So, no, I want to know how many sessions are you use? Did you use in your research? Right, right. The, so, how much zapping? How yeah, long? It's based. Right. So, in in our research, we brought participants in. These were just uh, college undergraduates that we brought in, and we stimulated their brain for. Uh, once a day for seven days. And the important thing is that while we're stimulating their brain, we're also having them perform a working memory training task. Because like I said, the simulation is supposed to make your brain more responsive and more receptive to your environment. So it makes the brains uh, more able to handle the working memory training. And in our study, we did see that we had two groups. We had a group that received stimulation while training on this task, and we had another group that simply trained on the task without stimulation, so just a standard sort of brain training group. And we did actually find that uh, uh, the group with stimulation performed better on the task over seven days um, as compared to the group without stimulation. And we were targeting specifically this area of the brain called the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex, um, and that part of the okay, brain. Okay, point to your point on the radio. What part of the head? There? It's uh, so, it's it's uh, it's, over, it's in the front part of the head. It's uh, the front and the top above your forehead. Okay. And uh, this part of the brain is heavily involved in working memory, executive functions. It's the part of the brain that's most recently involved. So it, it contains a lot of the functions that uh, we typically associate with higher cognitive abilities in humans. And let me ask, that I'm not trying to overstretch my no- knowledge base, is this one of the last to myelinate portions of the brain or is that is that part, I mean, you said later evolving in terms of human development, but in terms of yes. an individual, that's the last that myelinates almost? Right, 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 yeah. So the uh, we have these subcortical structures that are uh, deeper in the brain and those develop pretty quickly during our development, but the prefrontal cortex studies show doesn't really even fully reach maturity until roughly age 25 or so. Okay. Earlier for females, a little bit later for males. A little? Maybe. Uh, or that's a myth. I'm, I'm, I'm not aware oh. that, that's, uh, that that's the case. Um, if, if it is, then maybe you know something more than I oh, do. No, but, uh, I <laughs> do not. No, we didn't. I Let's not go there. Oh, yeah. I wanted to know the how long does the transcranial direct current stimulation effect last? So this is a very interesting question. Um, In our study, we actually saw um, effects that lasted for up to a year even. Uh, So these were very long-lasting effects. But I I want to be very clear. I I don't want to oversell uh, what this device is doing because uh, uh, these effects are naturally an interaction between the stimulation and the, uh, the training task. Um, and, you know, human memory is uh, reasonably good. If we pr- uh, have exposure to a task, we can usually hold on to, uh, you know, and if we're testing on that task like a year later, two years later, you know, having that prior exposure helps us to perform a lot better. Uh, but the critical thing here is that uh, a-, a year later, the uh, the group that did not receive stimulation um, did not uh, show as strong retention as group that did receive stimulation. Uh, but if you're asking solely about the direct effects of the electricity um, as far as the effects of uh, increasing your brain activity, that's very short term and uh, studies suggest that that lasts up to uh, maybe an hour of even that. Okay. So different levels. Right, right. Longevity there. Yeah, but uh, as I was saying, um, if you're pairing the stimulation with a task, because it potentiates your learning, uh, the effects of the learning can become 
um, drastically improved. Well, and is that why we, there's uh, with the memory retraining, they talk about the associative property. The more that a task is associated with an other data base of sorts, that that will reinforce the memory. Right, right. So I, I think you're talking about a, a concept that people call Hebbian plasticity, which oh, was that uh, right? <laughs> very well, I mean, yeah. uh, yes, yes. Uh, and uh, basically, the saying goes, the neurons that fire together, wire together. So the, the more you have uh, these neurons activating in response to to work in memory task, the more capable those neurons become and the more likely they are to fire efficiently um, upon future um, presentations of, uh, of that stimulus. Wow. Well, what does it matter what the participant's baseline is? Does it, the plasticity correlate with that? So that's a, that's a very interesting question, actually. And uh, um, I'm glad you asked that because there actually is uh, some accumulating evidence now that uh, TDCS may, may be a little more beneficial for uh, participants with a low baseline, actually. So, oh, um, really? Yeah, and that's, that's very exciting because uh, I, I, I see TDCS as um, a device that allows you to, to raise you up to your potential. And there's, there's this uh, effect in the psycholo psychological literature known as the Matthew effect where the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. So, you know, yeah. if, you're, if you're already pretty good at something, then you have the mental resources to be able to get even better. And that kind of increases this uh, cognitive uh, disparity and social disparity. Um, so I'm, I'm hopeful uh, that TCS is a, one of the tools that we can use as a society to try and uh, mitigate some of these differences and kind of level out the playing field. Well, you do actually, you have, we, in preparation for this, we talked a little bit about some, some equity issues. So that there isn't a, a race to sort of bring a lot of these things on the market. So what, um, for one, um, do you have any idea what something like this would cost? Because it's not, not, not everybody's going to have access to this. Yeah. Uh, it's well, this refresher. Actually, I have, a, I have a very good idea because oh, really? uh, there, there actually are already a few devices out on the market. What uh, are they called? Right now. Um, I, uh, th th there are so many devices. Uh, oh, well, wow. I mean, there, there are several. I, I don't want to single anyone. No, out no, no. But they, I, but there's a, br there's <laughs> names out there. They're already there, out there. There are, there are names Ask out there. Ask your doctor for this um, TDCS. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just, I just don't want to, uh, in selectively endorse no, no, one over not, any no, other. No, we're not going to do that. But so how much is the ball ballpark with a little package? So of these, these devices vary drastically, actually. Uh, oh. the, the cheapest ones you can get for about $100, uh, maybe even a little bit less. Uh, there are some mid-range ones in the several hundreds of dollars. And the uh, the, the high-end uh, research class devices are in the thousands of dollars, actually. So what current concerns do you have about this the commodification of this research? What might it look like and... Are we ready? You said some are already on the market, but there's there's a calibration. There's a very specific amount that any one brain uh, is going to benefit from and uh, over fry from if it's not calibrated properly. Yeah. So um, I, I I want to be really really clear about this yes. point because uh, you know although our research is uh, quite promising and there have been a number of other studies out there that have been conducted that are, that are also promising, I I actually feel like the uh, the commercialization of this product is happening a little bit too soon. Um, and just, you know, not that I have anything against making money off of this product, but I, I just think that um, advertising being what it is, it, it's always very aggressive and people tend to oversell uh, and overpromise. Um, and to be honest, uh, there are still a lot of unknowns and there's, we, we still don't have a full grasp on the long-term consequences of uh, repeated stimulation. Um, and we still don't fully understand what some of deleterious effects might be. Although TDCS uh, seems to have a pretty good safety profile so far, um, the, the nature of the simulation, which I haven't talked about yet, but yes. um, the, uh, the simulation actually involves uh, simultaneously increasing and also decreasing uh, brain activity. So there, there are actually two electrodes. Uh, one is known as the, the, as the anode, the other as the cathode. And uh, oh. to oversimplify, the, uh, the anode is thought to increase the activity of... Uh, of, of the target uh, cortical region, but the cathode is thought to uh, decrease activity. So um, it's, it's very difficult to manipulate the brain without having some sort of cost, and we don't always fully understand what this cost is. Okay. And there were other factors you mentioned in your publication that haven't been factored into 
the the outcome here. That's it's, I mean the baselines are variable, and there could be so many factors that could play a role in, in beyond what you're talking about is increased and decreased in brain activity. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, and I always want to ask, or I'm always thinking about it. I asked uh, Suzanne Yaki about it too. Is, uh, but it's it feels to me a bit like a kind of cognitive arms race that we're gonna let, uh, some people are gonna uh, have. A, me different access to this developing, strengthening neuroplasticity, improving working memory. It feels like pretty soon we're all going to be popping speed. We're going to be zapping ourselves. So where do you where do you go with your research with this uh, one that's talked about in professional circles? Well, um, I think that there are uh, two separate issues going on here. Um, one is um, the long-term social consequences of having this sort of device uh, publicly available for everybody. And I think that uh, uh, this is going to raise um, questions and conversations that scientists and ethicists and uh, uh, policymakers will have to sit down and, and hash out because, as, as you say, uh, there is the potential for um, increasing social disparity. Um, I, I can potentially even foresee cog- cognitive enhancement or via TDCS um, or other means uh, to accrue some of the uh, stigma that perhaps steroids have in um, oh. the athletic circle where, um, you know, it's it's thought to give some people an unfair advantage. So that's that's one issue. And I look forward to having those conversations with, uh, uh, with, with people of, of other professions to figure out what uh, what would be best um, in the future. Uh, but the other issue here is um, it's just basic research and uh, understanding what's going on at a neural level and at a basic scientific level. And I think that the the research should continue. We should continue to try and learn as much as we can about this technology so that we can have these uh, more macro level conversations uh, down the road. Well, I have a lot of faith in you doing that. The, Jackie, I has been doing this all without any kind of notes or laptop, which is bettering like about... The 80% of the academics who come in for interviews here in the studio with me. So I, I, well, since you've got it all down, it gives you a chance to look up, look around, and talk about the ethical and social equities that are involved well, here. You so. know what, Claudia, I, I'm going to have to admit, I, I did not know that I was allowed to have uh, notes or a laptop, otherwise well, I so may have been You sounded <laughs> superb. So, well, thank you, Jackie Yao. He's UCI, Human Neuroscience Researcher at the School of Social Sciences. Thanks for talking with us about your neuroplasticity working memory research today. It was a pleasure, Claudia. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, thank you. Well, that was my wrap. I want to just announce. Well, we're going to hear from author and competitive swimmer next week, Constantine Markidis, about the book he co-wrote with Olympian Anthony Irvin. Then we'll stroll through the Phillips Collection with the Orange County Museum of Art Director and CEO Todd Smith. Talk with you next week. Thanks for listening, everyone. One, two, three.